Anything arise in relationship to this? <laughs> no. I didn't think so. <laughs> I, um, I'm just so... experience with us and um, learned a lot about myself um, in practice being a lay person and not being in relationship and um, not necessarily having a partner for years and um, I just really felt tonight um normalized by what you were saying and also have experience with um, sex and love addiction 12 step groups that type of thing Um, just resonate with just everything that you were saying and um, how much more of an opportunity it is for me to see myself as a human, human being where nothing is wrong with me because that's always my fallback position is something's wrong with me. So um, it was just so wonderful to hear everything that you said. And um, I'm now being introduced to a type of therapy. It's called ACT, which is Acceptance Commitment Therapy. And it's like Buddhism in a a therapy model. It's amazing. Um, But uh, there's so much shame involved, I believe, with sexuality, and um, really just accepting that it's normal, and that it's okay, and to also really be aware of that sexual energy, you know, until I um, was not in a relationship and, and was practicing, I could start to see my sexual energy, what I did with it, how I interacted with people, um, when I was putting too much out, when I had to kind of titrate it. But until then, I didn't even know it was there. I was sort of just this being that had this thing that I wasn't even aware of. How powerful it is. um, And how it can harm myself and others. So, I'm just so grateful for the practice and for you being here and for feeling normal. (laughs) A human being that has normal, you know, things going on and, and also um, what you said about being regressed. I had an experience recently of, of a real kind of fight, you know, and um, I couldn't see it at the time and I thought about what you have said about having space with our um, hurt and our need to heal and that it's okay to take that time and that space and Really, that's what it came down to. Was I was regressed, they were regressed, and it was like two little kids trying to get their needs met. That wasn't going to happen in that moment. That's and right. It was so painful, yeah. so painful. Yeah. But to have that space and to be able to come back together and talk about it and really see it for what it was. Yeah. So I just. So 
the two things that resonate with me that are worthy to reflect a little bit more is the whole topic of shame. Because it is huge, you know, the sense of what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, and where we fit in that whole range, okay? So there's all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of views and all kinds of stuff about what we're supposed to be able to feel and not feel. And I remember at once Ajahn Sumedho gave a talk, and he talked about feeling sexual desire when he saw the backside of a baboon. You know, it was just like, well, you know, uh, it wasn't that he was going to act on it, but it was just something that was arising, you know. And I think what is really helpful is to realize that we don't have control over when desire arises, you know. And we don't need to label ourselves based on the causes and conditions in which desire arises. What we need to be careful about is where we choose what we do with it. So when we can see that as a human being we have an animal body and that some of the weirdest things, you know, just bring up. I mean, it's just like absolutely unpredictable. And some people get really caught out because they're convinced that their sexual orientation is like this. And all of a sudden they're attracted like this. And they think, well, what's going on, you know? And it's, it, it might be that it is in fact a sexual orientation thing that needs to, one needs to come to terms with. But it also might have much more to do with the fact that it's just nature and arising is arising and don't worry about it. It's like, why do we have to put ourselves in a label and box every time there's a feeling, you know? Well, we have very powerful social institutions and social norms that have been taught since we were born, you know? And that seems to be why they're so powerful. Those are powerful forces. So the social norm, the absolutely true, and the longing to belong is so incredibly intense that for many of us, we will compromise a lot in order to be part of a group that's important to us. But you see, what we have to differentiate, and as meditators we have now the tools, is that there is a difference between being present with something that arises as a feeling or as a thought or as an image and acting on it. And that difference then helps us be able to separate out which of the cultural conditioning we actually are willing to go along with and what we aren't. Yes, please. I had a question because you were talking about uh, how you were having the women own it and then the men had to go do physical labor. (laughs) So like the women were were, were owning their sexuality and then the, you were talking about men transforming their sexuality or that sexual behavior. And, and what's the difference between uh, feeling, uh, running away from something and transforming? So it has to do with our intention. So, and the intention to not face something is a denial or a running away. The intention to face it, to work with it, and to transform it is the, is the intention to meet it and to work with it. Right. Now, as a sister, I could talk with the other sisters, but it was really not very common that I could have open conversation with the monks. So I didn't really know what was going on with them. However, what I did observe was something that did not impress me, which is, is that many of the monks, when they ordained, Their sexuality went into freeze, into deep freeze. 
And when they disrobed, they were sexually at exactly the age they were when they ordained. So if you have somebody ordained when they are 22 and then disrobe when they are 55, it is a really phenomenal process to watch a 55-year-old man with a 22-year-old sexuality. And so for me, that was not impressive. But I wasn't in a position to, to give them grief about it. <laughs> the sisters never did that. Well, this is just a big question with me, because a lot of times I wonder whether something should be transformed or whether I should just sit with it, you know? Like, especially anger, like you brought that up. Like, how passion can be transformed into anger? And, and I wonder sometimes whether I should just sit with my anger or whether I should transform it. So the two things which are discerning things to be able to navigate that question, because that's a perennial question, is whether or not you're able to keep the precepts and whether or not you're getting stuck in the content. If you're keeping the precepts and you're not getting stuck in the content, then you have choice. If you're not keeping the precepts and you are getting stuck, then what you need to do is just back off, slow down, and chill out. You know, I, I, the conditioning that men and women have around their sexuality, as far as I can gather, is a little bit different. And, you know, I have a woman's body, and I've lived in a community with women for the last 20 years, so that's what I'm more familiar with now. And, you know, certainly we've heard for ages how strong men's sexuality is and how powerful and all of the rest of it is. But from my own personal experience, I would say for women it's actually intensely more powerful. However, the power of it is not so localized. It actually runs through the marrow of our being. And I think that's why, well, I don't know for sure, but it seems as if like sexual violation or sexual injury for women is so absolutely catastrophic because it cuts into the marrow of our being. One of the things, again, that you talked about was passion. And it just seems like when you're with somebody for a long time, everything is just is so much more intense. And I guess that's like an attachment kind of thing. Um, any little thing that they do is magnified. You know, it's, it's just such a disappointment or, or there's so much anger behind it when they let you down. And, 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 and it works the other way, too. Anything that they do is just so incredible and, you know, you've never seen anything like it, you've never felt anything like it. Where do you find middle ground with that? How, and, and can you find middle ground with that? I feel like I've been with this person for the person I've been with more than a third of my life. But, I mean, I have been. And how, how do you find any kind of any center in something like that? So I think it has to do with, again, this sense that this person is like up here and then the next person is like 100 feet down here. And so I think that is a, is a cultural problem that we're in the middle of. And so it's hard to sort these things out on a personal level when we're in a, a system that supports that way of relating. But certainly making an effort to um, have other friends and to allow, because when all of one's needs are focused on one primary person to be met, then what happens in that relationship is tremendously escalated in terms of the emotional activity of whether it's good or bad or whether it's satisfying or disappointing because everything is focused on them. So 
One way is to begin to get a sense of, well, how important it is actually to build community and to really let community be something that is a priority in one's life and to have other friends that one can share with and feel nourished by. So obviously in a primary partnership, there's going to be sexual intimacy that you don't share with others, but there's a gazillion other kinds of intimacy that you can share with others and to value it. The other thing is to recognize that the other person is never responsible for your feelings. Ever. Under any circumstances. They might trigger them, they might activate them, but they're not actually responsible. You're responsible for what you do with what you hear and what you see and what you perceive. So when you share the load, when you value the other connections and friendships and make a point of having other people who are part of your nourishment field, and then when you wholeheartedly begin to say, listen, nobody can make me disappointed. Where is it landing in me that I need to actually attend to my own work? Then what happens is, is that this stuff then begins to start, there needs to be, a, there's a little bit more space, and then there's a little bit more ground to work with it. These are not small projects. This is not a weekend project. <laughs> it's funny because I've been with one person for 16 years. I've been part of this group for probably about a little more than a year and a half now. And I definitely, you know, maybe it's something that I kind of took for granted because you said it before. Maybe I just didn't put it together, but you're right. I mean, <laughs> I have, uh, I mean, I have, I have noticed that I've leaned on people in this group and it's not as bad as it was 18 months ago or whatever it is, you know, but it's, and, I, and you're right too, it's not a small project. I mean, I guess 18 months isn't going to necessarily counterbalance 16 years. But what you can see is the more that you rally to support each other, then the more you can relax into a field of something that you have a sense is going to support you when you need it. You know. So I was delighted to see what was happening in terms of the group response to looking after Steve, not because only I think that it's important that he looked, be looked after properly, because for the group, when you can rally and take care of somebody who needs it, then you can trust that you're in something that's going to be able to hold you the same. And to be able to do that as a group is one of the most potent things that you can do for each other. Because this, this stuff that we have to navigate, some of it drops us into the rough and the raw that is so rough and so raw, we need the warmth of other people to reflect back to us. Our, it's like hypothermia. You know, in a certain place, you don't have the warmth to warm yourself up. Well, some of the stuff that we have to observe in our own hearts and minds is rough and you need friendship of people who actually know that territory who can hold the space and that is one of the things that a group can do is it can work on getting beneath just the superficial knowing of each other to be able to start mirroring that level of goodness so that when each person is going through whatever they're going through they know that they're in a group of people who understand it's hugely supportive. There's that conditioning, though, that you talked about. It's almost, in the back of your head, you almost feel like you're it's some kind of emotional cheating or some kind of emotional, uh, I, I don't know how you would describe it, but it, 
I mean, you're, you're conditioned to think that this person is supposed to be it. And if you rely on somebody else, and it's, it's almost like it's wrong, but when you do start to look outside of that person, you realize it's not wrong, but it's been beating your head, or it's been beating in my head so many times culturally that that's what I'm supposed to do. It's just a, a strange thing to... So every time we're up against a belief system that no longer feels like it fits completely with us, then we're, we, are, we are up against, the, we're, we're moving against the stream. So society and values and conditioning and patterning is going this way, and we're saying, this is not satisfactory, it's not fulfilling, it doesn't lead to happiness, it doesn't lead to contentment. I don't want to do it anymore. But to say, okay, to say that is one thing, and then to actually not do it is something different. But that's what this practice is about, is actually coming to one's own clarity about where one's values are and standing in one's integrity with that, which requires often going against the stream. Now, in a partnership, you need to negotiate with your partner. You can't just say, hey, later, mate, you know, I'm doing it different. I'll talk to you in a, in a week. <laughs> you know, these things need to be negotiated. But oftentimes, if there's, it, 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 can, it can be that it's not, it's, the, the issues are similar for both people. Yeah. But that's the thing, you know, we, we, we long to be autonomous and independent, but the longing for acceptance is so huge, you know, that we're not seen of being out of the order of whatever the group is, you know. And so it takes enormous clarity and courage to be able to recognize what the current or the stream of conditioning is and the places that it doesn't fit and to begin to start renegotiating new ways. But when one's committed to precepts and to harmlessness and to kindness and to generosity, it can give you the courage to do just that because you know it's not coming from a bad place. It's coming from the right place. So the practice supports the capacity to do the practice. Yes, please. Uh, thank you for your teaching. Um, could you just touch on uh, what you were talking about a, a few moments ago about the monks who came out of their monastic lifestyle after 30 years and uh, had no way to deal with their their sexuality? Uh, would that imply that nothing in their teachings over uh, over lifetime or over uh, 30 years in, in the Buddhist teachings gave them some means of dealing with their what, what I got from that was almost a repressed sexuality, um, that they had no way to deal with that when they were no longer uh, in that lifestyle. So, you know, we're in dangerous territory when we're speculating all these kinds of things, because I have no idea really what was, going, that what was going on for them. The teachings are clear. They're not about repression. The teachings are absolutely clear. They're not about repression. You can have absolutely clear teachings and spend 30 years of your life repressing. Okay? And so, you know, it has to do with the fact of what an individual person's relationship with this energy is and the kind of fear or overwhelm that they feel when they feel this stuff arising. It's not so much to do with the teachings. It's to do with what they're doing with them. 
Uh, that's why I wanted clarification. Uh, it, uh, it seemed to imply that all monks might have a similar problem because they had no way to deal with their these sexual things as they came up throughout their monastic training. Well, I don't know what goes on in the monks' community, you know, so I don't know what's going on for them. I, we got the same teachings. We didn't get different teachings, right. you know. So, you know. And it's not as if women have a monopoly and on, on non-repression. There were certainly plenty that were doing the repression as the root, you know, the high and holy path. But I couldn't manage that, you know. There's just no way. So I had to find a way of actually opening up this territory and allowing it to do what it needed to do and come to a place of balance with it, with all of the kind of ripples that that re- resulted in. Yeah. I have a quick question about um, some things you were talking about. As far as um, we have these, like sort of like cultural conditionings, we have these um, attachment disorders, we have these uh, traumas from early life, and and then we get become adults and we start to practice meditation, and then we encounter all these sort of like belief systems in our meditation. We're just sitting on the cushion, and all of a sudden they're like right there. We get to see it all. So then from there, that's where I get. I'm curious about the next step, you know, the next sort of like going beyond those belief systems and going beyond all the past traumas. And I mean, is it, um, what do the teachings say about that? So the teachings deal with life much from a transpersonal perspective. They don't deal with it from a pre-personal and a personal perspective. So what that means is, is is that from the teachings perspective, what is needed is to watch things arise, to know that they're not who you are ultimately, that they change, and that whatever was arising ultimately is unsatisfactory. That's what the teachings say. Okay? So the teachings are clear, but they're limited. Because all of us who've got pre-personal and personal issues that we're working with, and I don't know any single person I've ever met who doesn't, so it's like, you know, we're all in this together, you know, is is that we actually need other skillful means in order to allow that stuff to come into health and healing and release. And that's where the monastic community can be limited unless there are senior people around who are really sophisticated because they use the transpersonal teachings as a panacea to deal with everything, and it does not work. So you need to have skill on how to work with the pre-personal issues and the trauma stuff and the personal developmental issues rather than have it all be, this is arising, it's not personal, it's not self. Because it doesn't allow the integration and healing. It, it supports not identifying with it, but it doesn't allow healing. And where does the skill come from? Skill comes from suffering and from trying other things. From experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's been my experience. You know. So, you know, 20 years into meditation and I was still miserable as sin and I realized it's not a question of doing more or harder, you know. I needed another way of looking at some of this stuff and I was just... I was, I was flabbergasted by what was there that I hadn't seen. Absolutely flabbergasted. I was just, you know, I had this, I had this self-image of being so confident. You know, I was sitting on a pile of self-hatred that was as wide as Kansas. 
I mean, it was just, I couldn't believe it. I had no insight that that actually was a major motivation of what was driving me in my life. And, you know, you sit on stuff like that, it has an effect. When you allow it into consciousness, it begins to heal and release. Then you can sit back into your own skin in a different way than when, you, when that's the kind of bottom ground that you're working with. So there's nothing wrong with meditation. And the contemplative model is phenomenally powerful. But for me, I was interested in integration, and I was interested in non-suffering. And I didn't care if it was pre-personal or personal or transpersonal suffering. You know? I wanted to understand and to let it release, because I could see that when it didn't release, I was miserable. I mean, I'm not finished with my work yet. I'm still in the process. But I can see that the work that I have done has really paid off. I'd like to go back a little bit. And then this, what you just said sounded so very right on. Um, that, uh, what I understood, you just... My understanding was that in relationship, that, there, that, that that we have to negotiate inside relationship. Does that mean is that that when, that, that when we're doing when we're doing relationship, there's a certain amount of negotiation that's going on, uh, and but it, it seems to me that a lot of what's going on in the relationship is pre-personal and personal. And how do we use uh, the sitting practice? How do we use what we do when we're actually doing meditation practice to, to come to grips with the personal, the pre-personal and personal? Because it seems like the negotiating, when we're, when we're trying to negotiate in a relationship and we're negotiating from the pre-personal and personal, that's where it just uh, goes nuts, you know? Because I'm being six years old and they're being 13 years old and we've got, we want what we want and, we, and nobody's willing to give up any ground, you know? So what the nuns did is after 20 years of doing this, we began to get some more skills. And the skills were to be able to recognize the difference between when we were in one of these kind of spaces and when we weren't. And so to recognize when we were in one of those spaces meant that that was not the time to negotiate. Okay? So we would put a hold and say, you know, this is not the time to talk about it or to sort it out. And so until you had two people who had some ground then it wasn't actually helpful to try and sort it out. It just made it worse. Okay? So after 20 years of living with these unbelievable scenarios that would just get, like, out of hand and take months, some of them years, to recover from, we were motivated to figure out, well, what actually do we need to do? Well, I began to locate in myself, you know, when I felt like I had the ground to to talk about stuff and when I didn't. And to be honest enough to say, listen, I can't do it right now. I mean, I can see that there's a need to do it, but I'm not up for it right now. I need more time. 
And so then what would happen in the meditation is, is that I would work with what got activated. So where was the stuff landing in me? And then as I was able to get some perspective on where it was landing on me and, and work on myself, then that gave me more ground. So oftentimes what happens is individual raw places trigger get triggered. So your deep vulnerable place ends up being a, a catalyst for the other person's deep vulnerable place. Yeah. Now, if I can see that in myself and begin to heal that myself, then I've got some ground. But if every time that person says this, that, or the next thing, it opens up this chasm that I go into that I don't have ground with, then I can't talk about it with them. I need to wait. So we developed this sense of learning how to identify when we had the skill and when we didn't have the skill, when we needed to have a third person in or the group to help hold us, or when we just needed absolutely time out. You know, if somebody kind of blasted my boundaries to smithereens, it would take me a while until I could recover and be able to, to talk it through. And I just had to accept that, that that was where I was at, that it wasn't a fault, it was the reality and to work with reality rather than an idea about how I was supposed to be. And then we, we worked from the place of resource and ground. And then from that, then we could find a way through. But there's plenty of times when you can't talk about it until there's more ground. You know? And that's true in community, and it's true in partnership, and it's true in families, and it's true in work. It's just the nature it's not the way we'd like it to be, but it is the way that it is. Two follow-up questions. One, when you say you, you locate it, were you locating it in your somewhere in your physical body or uh, in a particular thought? You say so. That, that, that was interesting when you talked about locating it. So, for example, I, using one particular scenario where there was a, somebody who got incredibly angry, and that anger blasted my boundaries. And I couldn't find a place of, of, of something that wasn't shaking. I was shaking. Um, trembling inside on some kind of a level. So I needed to wait until I stopped shaking inside until I felt like I could have the capacity to talk to this person. And one of the ways that I could locate that was that my whole system didn't contract when I was near them. I actually could hold a feeling of, of kindness and goodness towards them while I was in their presence. Because before I had the ground, every time I would get near them, my whole system would collapse into this contracted space. It was a protection against wanting to defend myself against something that had blasted through. Once I had more ground, then I could feel a sense of warmth and a connection with their goodness. I didn't collapse when I was in their presence, and that gave me the signal that I was getting closer to being able to talk. But I needed to be very careful about how much and under what circumstances and then say, it's enough now, let's try again another time so that I didn't go and re-blast open boundaries that had just like a thin shell, you know, just thinly formed. They weren't solid. Could you say that, that in practicing meditation you could have that body experience of being able to be, be there without 
the feeling of contraction. That, you, that, that one of the things that's available in meditation practice is actually a, like acculturating yourself to that. Or, you see, for me, what I needed to do was to learn how to navigate the internal terrain of my emotions as part of my meditation practice. When I was able to do that more, then the meditation practice helped me to be able to learn how to relax around these phenomenally strong emotional things that would happen. So we get challenges in life, and we bring up a lot of emotions. Through a meditation practice, we can navigate those challenges. And then, sort of, when they're done, we've had that experience and we've had this new skill. And is that sort of the, this new skill of navigating through life without, you know, uh, being sort of peaceful with peace and compassion, love, and kindness? Is that sort of what you're kind of. That's sort of it. <laughs> That is sort of it. Not really navigating, though. You're kind of just letting it be. That's right. And you're not in this forceful place. You're just going. Shall we wrap up? Would somebody like to do the sharing of blessings? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.